everybody. Welcome back to the Blackware Intelligence Podcast. Hope you're all doing well. Before we get into the show, let me tell you a little bit about our sponsor, FTX US. FTX US, one of the largest crypto companies in the United States, is the safest, most regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other digital assets. With FTX, you can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than top competitors. There are no fixed minimum fees, no ACH transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees. FTX has also recently announced their stocks beta rolling out to U.S. customers to enable crypto, stocks, and NFT trading in one interface. This includes hundreds of U.S. exchange-listed securities, including common stocks and ETFs, and an integrated experience within the existing FTX U.S. cryptocurrency trading application. Use promo code BLOCKWARE1 or go to ftx.blockwareintelligence.com to earn free crypto on every trade over $10. Again, that's Blockware one or go to ftx.blockwareintelligence.com to get started today. Now let's get into the show. Um, hey everybody, welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. Today I have a very special guest, Mr. James Lavish. James has become somewhat of a, a good friend of mine. Uh, we met in, in Miami at the Bitcoin conference. James is a great guy. He's got a really cool background. And on top of that, of course, he's extremely brilliant uh, and has an extensive background in the financial landscape. Uh, James, thank you so much for hopping on the show uh, and, and taking the time out of your day to, to come join us on the podcast today. Yeah, of course. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm honored to be here. It's, it's fun to, to uh, watch all of you guys just you know, in this Bitcoin space, the, the intelligence here is incredible. I don't care how old or young you are, you know, there's there's some awesome minds here. So I appreciate you having me and I, and I always enjoy talking to you, Will. Sure, thanks. How do you think, uh, how do you think the kind of landscape of, of, I guess, networking and just all around just connectivity between all the individuals in this ecosystem compares to those in traditional finance? It just seems like, I mean, again, I, I don't have any traditional finance background, but like, it seems like everyone is extremely willing to just share things because this is such an infantile market. And like, I've never met anyone that I will say like I strongly disliked. Uh, it just seems like everyone's super excited just to push this ecosystem forward. But I'm curious your thoughts on how that compares to the traditional finance world. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I've never been asked that before. And to be honest, you know, the traditional investment world, at least in the institutional world, it's pretty difficult to get in, Will. You know, you have to kind of know somebody uh, or you have to have gone to Stanford or Harvard uh, and gotten your MBA, you know. Uh, otherwise, you have to be introduced to somebody, meet them, kind of prove yourself that you're, you're somebody they would want to work with. Um, you have to have come super highly recommended and then people will start talking to you about whether it's it's hiring you or working with you or consulting or whatever it is but in this world it's unbelievable how how generous everybody is i mean i i jumped onto twitter what in september october of last year and i've met so many people and between people like you and greg foss and larry uh lapard um jeff booth you know, they, there's just some absolutely incredible people in this space and they're super generous. Like you said, they're always, always willing to talk through their ideas or their, their experience and share that with you, which is, is awesome. And that I like doing that, you know, I like taking what 
I've had in my in my past, my experience, my institutional investing knowledge, and and bringing it here to you know give people a little bit of a different lens, maybe to see things through. It, it's not always the right lens, but it's definitely something that I think is important to the space. So I'm, I'm just thankful that it, it, it's been super easy to, to, you know, meet everybody. So definitely it's, it's a completely different world. Well, let me ask you this first, I guess to like kind of give our, our audience some context, can you just walk us through high level kind of what your background was, how you got into finance? I don't want to, you know, have you repeat yourself too much because I know you've kind of ran through this on other podcasts, but at least kind of to just give us context and how you got into the financial landscape. You're part of a hedge fund, all, all those kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, uh, to, we'll, we'll do the really fast recap for people who haven't heard, um, but um, you know, I was a hockey player in, in, in college. I was playing hockey at Yale um, and I was good enough and doing well enough that my plan was to go to play NHL right after college. Um, and we don't have scholarships at, in the Ivy League for sports. So I was paying my own way, but the trade-off is I was getting a great education. And so I knew that fortunately my senior year I got hurt and it was pretty much a career ending injury. And I was left with you know, no real plan and no identity. And so I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was in New York, uh, the team that I, that I tried out with uh, the New York Rangers, they went on to win the Stanley cup and I was sleeping on friends sofas, trying to figure out what to do and how to pay my bills. So, um, and, you know, I, I ended up meeting some people and figuring out, well, I'm pretty good at math and, uh, and, what do you do if you if you don't know what you're going to do, but you've come out of a school like that, you go to Wall Street, right? But I didn't want to become an investment banker. I thought that's not really where I want to spend my time um, putting together deals. And really, when you're young, you just you're just working 100 plus hours a week putting together pitch books and, and deal books for mergers and acquisitions, pretty much. Um, so. Uh, but I found this world of trading, institutional trading and investing. And, um, and my, my first job, I got hired by a British investment bank to trade something called ADR arbitrage, which is trading foreign securities on the New York Stock Exchange. And you can buy and sell them and translate them using the currency and a basket of securities and the stamp tax and all that. And you can arbitrage between one exchange and the other. Back then we didn't have spreadsheets. So whoever could grab their calculator and do it the fastest, you know, uh, they, I mean, we didn't even have iPhones, right? So it was a, it was like a little calculator just as quickly as you can. And you got the trade if you, if you got it fast enough. So, and that was really how I started meeting people in hedge funds. So I don't know how much you know about hedge funds, Will, but um, back in the, in the early nineties, they weren't really, that well respected on the street you know we, they had been dr drugged through the the mud between the lbo world and then you had the insider trading scandals of michael milken and and uh, ivan boski and so after 1987 it was they weren't really well respected and people didn't really know what they were doing and but the hedge funds that i was being introduced to were ones that were trying to lower risk of investing. And the way they did that is they hedged out what we call beta risk. So your, your, your market risk, the market going up and down is your beta. You know this, but for the benefit of some of your investors or your, your listeners. Um, so the beta risk is just the market going up and down. But if you can isolate 
what you want to capture that you think that you've found in the market that there's a there's a discrepancy there's an inefficiency you can short out that beta risk right so that's what hedge funds were doing they were buying and selling securities hedging out that beta risk an example would be okay um, buy Citibank, short Bank of America in the same dollar amount. Well, you're, you've shorted out both the market and the uh, banking banking sector risk because they'll both go up and down with that risk. But if Citibank is is a better company, has better underlying fundamental value than Bank of America, then that that spread should close. You're short this. And you're long this. So even if they both go down, that spread should close and Citibank comes up and Bank of America comes down in that in that ratio, if that makes sense. So that was how I got into it, just understanding that mathematical relationship and being able to do things like that. So yeah, most no, I think that that's super helpful. It's so super interesting as well. You know, it's always it's always cool to to listen to people who, you know, were were in the financial world like longer before me and just hearing about like how inefficient things were, you know, now like all these spreads are super tight and like, it's really difficult to get into any type of, you know, arbitrage uh, type of trading. And especially in the traditional finance world and in crypto, we still have all these like crazy fat spreads that you could arb out. And there's a lot of opportunity there, but in traditional finance, I mean, a lot of that's kind of been arbed away over time as the market gets more efficient. So yeah, cool. well, I think it's both, it, it's both the market being, you know, the, the market got more efficient, but it's also because just structurally interest rates came down so much that if you think about it, you're, you're keying everything off of the risk, risk-free rate, right? Risk-free. <laughs> um, so, which we know now being Bitcoiners, nothing's risk-free. So, um, but the, the point is that the, as the interest rates came down, that, that spread that everything's keyed off of lowered. And so it's been very difficult to find any yield anywhere because if you're going to take on risk, then you I mean if you can make three, four, five percent doing something that's slightly riskier than this, then you'll do it. But back then it was, you know, we were trying to make between nine and twelve percent. And that's after the early 90s, 90s, we were trying to make 12 to 15 percent. So now that's been collapsed all the way down. And it's really difficult to be profitable if you have something go wrong in your portfolio because you can't weather that, that, that spread blow up will blow up your portfolio if you know, you're not making enough return on each of, the, uh, each of the individual investments on the way along. So you, it, the, the analogy is you're picking up nickels in front of a steam, uh, steamroller, you know, so. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I didn't, I didn't think about that as well. What do you think the perception from some of these traditional finance entities is of, of the space, like overall, but most recently with all these blowups? Yeah, I think, um, look, I, I have a very small circle of these individuals, especially compared to someone like you. But the few people that I do talk to, I think there's kind of a, a mix right down the middle of some people approaching this as, yeah, I told you so, this thing's a scam. And then you've got some people that say, hey, look, you know, I'm actually interested in, in, you know, getting involved in this space now because it seems like, you know, there's a lot of distressed pricing and a lot of forced selling, you know, perhaps some things that are analogous to things that have taken place in traditional finance. Like you look at three arrows capital versus long-term capital management, right? I mean, pretty much the yeah. same thing. Um, 
So like, how, how would you say the perception from those individuals you speak to has been of the space overall, as well as most recently over the last few months with all these crazy events that have taken place? Oh, I mean, in the, in the mid uh, 2010s, so like 2015 to 2018, you know, it was, it, all of it just was considered a scam, a total scam, like there was just Ponzi scheme after Ponzi scheme. Nothing was differentiated really in, in my world um, for the most part. Uh, and then since then, some people have started to understand it. And so you have very few people who really understand the space and understand that Bitcoin's different than everything else. And, you know, they, they get it. Uh, but they're, they come from a traditional mindset, right? So the traditional investing mindset has everything keyed off of, of, again, that risk reward and everything's looked at as risk assets. So bonds were, were your safest asset and, and anything in equities and beyond is, is a risk asset, right? So, and crypto was just lumped in with all those risk assets and people thought of it as technology. And so technology analysts are the ones who were covering it and technology portfolio managers. And so uh, what you got was very few people who really understand it. And then you have a few people who, or a bunch of people who think, oh yeah, I'm in the space. I see that there's a, a, a lot of, um, there's, there's a way to create some alpha here in my portfolio because of the volatility and with assets that are rising in value, volatility is a good thing. And so, uh, but they just started buying anything from, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Cardano, Solana, you know, whatever they, they, they put in their portfolios because they kind of saw it all as the same. And they were looking more along the lines of what's the asset and the market value of each of these assets? And where do I think those market values can shake out? And so there, a, a lot of them were just making bets. And so that's the, that's another chunk. And then the, the last chunk um, is just, just completely, you know, they just completely shut down to it. Like, don't want to even talk about it. So it's, uh, it, but I, I think that, I think that it's, they're coming around. And when you have, when you have firms like Fidelity put out reports like you and I have talked about before, that's, that's really important to have somebody in the, in the traditional space, like one of the top five investment managers in the world to put out something that, that says, look, this is why this is different. That's a, that's a pretty big stamp of not necessarily approval, but it gives it validity. You know, it says like, this is something that needs to be considered. And so I think that things like that and things like a little bit of legislation around some clarity from our regulators on, on how things are going to shake out with, uh, you know, not just the, just the, you know, know your uh, customer, the KYC, but also uh, how are things going to settle properly and, um, and what are the tax implications of these things and how are they treated as whether they're, they're commodities or their securities or what, what, how are they going to be classified? And once we have that, that gives institutional investors a, a whole lot more ground to stand on. And remember that 98% of them are only thinking first, what's my fiduciary duty? And then I can go from there. And if I don't understand, if, if, if I can't have clarity from what this thing actually is, well, then it opens me up to litigation from my investors if I don't understand it well enough. So that's kind of, that, that's kind of where we're at right now. 
And, you know, that's from the institutional world. In terms of correlation, like how do you think Bitcoin will behave relative to other assets? So some of these correlations will increase and like how will Bitcoin evolve as, uh, you know, in terms of like how people will think of Bitcoin in their portfolio? No, I, I, that, that's a good question. I don't, I don't think that the correlation will increase. It will decrease in my mind. And there's a, there's a number of reasons around that. But um, the first thing is we talked about just a few seconds ago was, look, the, the people who are interested in, in this space, in the institutions, are, are fr they're, they're from the technology side. Like they look at this as technology, the, the technology analysts are the one who are the ones who are, are analyzing it, you know, the ones who understand cryptography and cryptocurrency uh, implications and how it all fits into the um, into the space. But once that kind of bleeds over and really moves into the financial world and people start looking this looking at this as, as it's digital money, I think that that's where it starts to differentiate itself. But the big break will be when people understand that it's a store of value. Now, how do we get there, right? So the question is, like, what is it going to take for Bitcoin to be, in particular, to be seen as a store of value? And, and I think it's going to take the asset to have enough market value that, and liquidity that the volatility dampens. And that's going to take, it's going to be, it's going to happen in steps, right? So it's going to take a few very, very large institutional investors to start buying Bitcoin, right? And not just buying it, but then also announcing that they bought it, right? So you've got what, you've got five firms, we talked about this before, we've got five firms that control $30 trillion of, of investment assets in the world. So if you figure that there's, you know, uh, about $700 trillion in, in total investment assets, $730 trillion in investment assets, you know, um, that's a lot, 30 trillion out of, out of seven, 700, 720. So, but five of those firms, you got BlackRock, Vanguard, Fidelity, State Street, and Morgan Stanley. And it, if any of those firms start announcing that they've, they've really taken this and considered a separate asset, and we know that we talked about Fidelity, we know that they're doing something. BlackRock, of course, is doing something. But when Vanguard comes out, when Morgan Stanley comes out and says, we are putting this in our, in our portfolios, that's gonna be a big deal. So, and once they do that and they start buying it, then you're going to get a lot of other investment managers that feel like they've got to do this. So um, it, it takes time, but we'll come back to that in a second. But once they start buying this and they decide they want to have a 1% position in this, well, then Bitcoin, a 1% position in, in all assets, right? So if, they, if, if you look at all portfolios and, and across all asset classes between bonds, uh, investable bonds, corporate bonds, sovereign bonds, you know, um, you've got stocks, you've got real estate, um, you've got um, art and collectibles, and you've got gold and silver and, and uh, metals. So but if you put all of that in a basket in, in one big portfolio and you say that 1% of that has to be the separate asset class, well, then you're, you're already at a $350 million Bitcoin, $350,000 Bitcoin, sorry. Don't want to get everybody too excited. So, but $350,000 Bitcoin, okay. Now you're talking about a $7 trillion asset, right? You get that up to 2% and you're talking about over a $10 trillion, $14 trillion asset. 
now you now you really do have the ability to put money in this and not see that same volatility. It's just not going to move the same way as it does here as such a small asset. I mean, we're we're half a, not even half a trillion dollars anymore. So, um, but once you have that, then I think that it begin, it really it it takes off. And I don't know where that breaking point is, but it's somewhere. It's somewhere before that that uh, store value recognition that it just becomes completely uncorrelated. So maybe somewhere between one hundred and two hundred thousand dollar Bitcoin, where it just it rips up and it just complete completely uh, decorrelates to the rest of the market. That's that's kind of the way I'm I'm, I'm seeing it. That's that a sense. long answer. Sorry. No, no, that, that was <laughs> awesome. No, that was that was super that was super enlightening. Um, what do you think about like the DeFi space in terms of, you know, I think there's a lot of questions around how to value these things. Uh, are they decentralized? Uh, but at the same time, you know, I think, you know, whether, and again, I know you're, you know, one of these, you know, you're very Bitcoin centric on, on Twitter and when you're you know talking public and things like that. So, but I'm just curious from the, the perspective of this type of individual that we're, that we're talking about. Do you think that they'll basket in these other, you know, digital assets with Bitcoin, or do you think they view these things as more of kind of quasi digital businesses, while Bitcoin is more of a commodity? Like, how do you how do you kind of think they'll they'll approach the two, or will they just view them, basket them together? No, I think that that's exactly what's going to happen. Is that that once Bitcoin becomes recognized as a commodity, then that that's when it kind of breaks off from the rest of the pack. And but that's going to take a little bit. We the, the, there's so much misunderstanding still. Uh, I mean, you can see it in the mainstream media every single day. I mean, look at the coins that they have listed on CNBC and Bloomberg. I mean, it's like it's embarrassing that it's some of the stuff that they list up there. But um, so once they once the institutions do recognize that, then yeah, then then it really does break off from that pack. Um, right now. The people I talk to, they're like, oh, yeah, we, we own crypto. We own Ethereum and Bitcoin. And it's, you know, it's like you, you, <laughs> you want to you just kind of shake them and say, you've got to do some reading, man. You've got to really, like, understand the difference. And so. Um, you think people are just indexing, they're, they're right? They just it. look at the top three or five and they just say, hey, look, I'll take a weighted position in the top five. Yeah, that's, you know, that's not a, that's not an uncommon thing to do, Will, is to, is to say, okay, I know that there's something here. Okay, so let's say we're talking here that Bitcoin's at $20,000. I know that there are, there are institutions sniffing around here for real now. And uh, whether or not they're big hedge funds or some of the smaller um, either endowment or pension funds, they're looking at this and saying, okay, we've got to at least take a little bite here and then we'll figure it out along the way. And when you do that, you're not really sure what you're doing, right? So you buy a little bit of Bitcoin, you buy a little bit of Ethereum, you buy a little bit of whatever else, and you, you start doing your research and really digging in, and then you reweight them, right? So if, if I knew, if, there's, you get this spidey sense, right? When you're, when you're in investing for a long time, you think there's something here, I sense it, I've heard enough that my, my subconscious is, is definitely analyzing this. And I feel there's something I need to be doing here. So I'm going to take a 1% position and then I'll start doing or a half a percent position, something. And then I'll start really doing the work because if I take that position, I'm going to have to do the work. I can't just take the position and hope. 
So once I take it, then I'll do the work. It's not going to impact my portfolio terribly negatively if, if I did the wrong thing because I'll be able to get out. So even if I lost 20% on a half a percent position, that's 10 basis points for the, for the whole portfolio. No big deal. But I'm not going to want to lose it. I'm going to want to do some work. So let's figure out where we are. And that's kind of, that's, that's really kind of where we're at, you know, to be truthful for a lot of these guys. For sure. Let's pivot over to some macro stuff. Um, you know, I, I know, you know, one of the things you did while you're in the traditional space is you dealt with, you know, currencies, obviously, as, as you mentioned, um, you know, for me, you know, I was born in, in 2002. I always thought of the euro as being worth more than the dollar. And it's been really strange over the last week to see the euro actually go below the value of the dollar. Can, can we, I don't even really know where to start with this stuff. I mean, I, I want to just get your thoughts on everything going on with the euro and the yen. I mean, it's just absolute insanity, at least relative to anything I've personally ever seen in my short investment career. So I guess we can yes. start with the euro and then and then go to the yeah. yen. Or wherever you want to go. Yeah. With it. No, the, the euro is is it's it's kind of mind-boggling, right? So uh there, there are structural problems with Europe, right? So they've got this southern belt of countries that, you know, Greece and Italy and Spain and Portugal, that they, they don't have great balance sheets, right? So they have a lot more debt than they have GDP, right? So, um, but they're in this collection of, of countries that have all agreed to use this central bank. And so uh, the central bank is setting their, their, their rates. Okay, so you've got the central bank setting their rates. Meanwhile, they're actually not doing anything, right? So you've got this inflation that's just com completely out of control there. 8.6% was their last print, which is um, a record out there. And so, but the problem is, well, they haven't raised rates in 11 years and their, their key rate is still negative. It's negative 50 basis points, negative half a percent still, even though inflation is going up and up and up. And they're just sitting there and not, they haven't done anything. Now they, they claim they're gonna raise rates next week. I don't know how much they're going to do, maybe 50 basis points, I, I don't know. But they need to do something fast. But the problem is that once you have that inflation print, well, then everybody starts realizing, oh God, they're gonna have to raise rates out in Europe. They're not gonna have a choice, right? So who's going to be in trouble if that happens? Well, of course, the, the worst balance sheets are in Italy and Greece and, and, uh, and it, it, the Italian bonds just took off. The, the, uh, the, the rates on the Italian 10-year, they spiked over 4% and then over 3.5% in Greece. And so traders are worried that that will then spark problems within the banking community of those countries which eventually leads to contagion and problems with the sovereigns, right? So those, those countries' debt. So you, the, the issue is that they're stuck. They're, they, can't, they can't raise rates too much, right? But they have to raise them in order to kind of clamp down on, on the demand issue. But they're having a massive supply issue out there with energy costs and not even be able to supply energy. Apparently, this this winter there's going there's going to be some major problems there. Um, but their solution is print more money. They're going to do yield curve control on certain 
bonds within certain countries. So they haven't done this before where they're just like, okay, well, we're going to buy the 10 year, they, they, they've called this a fragmentation tool. It came out a few weeks ago and they said, we have this new tool. It's called the fragmentation tool. It's a, it's a measure that we can use in order to make sure that we, we uh, are standing behind and we'll do all that we can do to support all the countries that are part of our union. Okay. Well, what they're doing is called yield curve control, where they're 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 picking, they're cherry picking certain maturities and saying that we're going to support this maturity of this country. And the the one that is obvious is the 10-year, uh in the 10-year treasury in Italy. And so immediately after the 10-year spiked, as soon as they said that, it came back down because people are like, okay, 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 it's gonna be okay because the, the ECB is going to support Italy. And so they're in, I mean, they're in trouble. So what happens then? Then the Central Bank of Europe is buying those bonds, and it gets put on the it gets put on Europe the East the European Union's balance sheet, and then everybody has to pay for it. But you're paying for countries that don't have uh, they don't have great policy, right? So they're not they're they're not going to have austerity like they're they like they ought to or need to in order to pay for that in order to get their debt and GDP aligned with their own with their own country. And so who has to pay for it? Well, the northern countries have to pay for it. And eventually, there's going to be enough frustration and anger from the north that they're paying for, you know, for policy that that is that's troubling in the south. And they're not going to want to have to take on this debt as a union. And so the question is, do they force them to uh, to to reprice their debt, or do they or they actually push them out of the union? But eventually something breaks. I don't know when it happens and how long it takes, but this is just not a good path to go down. What do you think about the yen as well? You know, I, I know they've implemented yield, yield curve control. Um, I remember looking briefly one day, and the the yield had spiked up to like, I think it spiked up like twenty five bips or something, yeah. and they came back yeah. in and, and bought it back down, but. Um, you know, it seems like they've basically chosen to sacrifice their currency uh, for the for the stability of the bond market. Um, you know, which is what yield curve control is. The yen is now below. I think it's below its two thousand uh, lows. So I think it's the lowest it's been in like 20, 25 years or something like that. Um, what What do you think? Like, how how will that kind of play out? Yeah, the the thing is, okay, so it's the lowest it's been in 25 years. That's one thing. But the second thing is the the pace it took to get there. I mean, it's happened in the last couple of months. It's been an, an, it's been incredible how that that the yen for everybody who's watching and doesn't and hasn't been following this, the yen is a re, it's a reverse quote. So as it goes higher, it means it's getting weaker, right? So it went from 115 up to 140, almost. It's at 138. It just, it, it just, it, it's kind of flirting with 140 now. The problem is it, it did it so quickly, right? And the reason is um, that uh, we'll go back to what happened in Europe in a second here. But the reason is that as as Japan has has absolutely they've they've declared they're going to buy every single ten year Treasury that is offered on the market to keep that yield of the 10 year at 0.25%, 25 basis points. So that's called, that's their, your yield curve control out there where they're going to buy every single bond. It doesn't matter. 
And they have bought so many bonds in the last month and a half or two months, Will, that they now own over 50% of all JGBs, Japanese government bonds. They, the, the, the BOJ, the Bank of Japan, owns over half of their own bonds. It's just insanity. Like this is, this is a, a new one. No, no other sovereign has done this yet. So now they own ha over half their bonds. And you're right, the yen is suffering. So why is that? Well, as, as people are selling, as, as investors sell the yen, or they sell their, excuse me, their 10-year bonds or any other bond, and they're getting out of that Japanese treasury, well, they get yen in return for that. But they don't want to hold the yen. They know there's going to be pressure on it. So they sell the yen and buy dollars because that's the, the flight to safety, right? And the, the trade is to, to sell your, your Japanese bonds by your, your, your US treasuries. Why? Because US treasuries are yielding 3% or close to it, 2.8 to 3%. And so if you're selling your, your bonds over here that are only yielding 0.25% and you're getting a better yield over here of almost 3%, of course, you're gonna sell yen by dollars by US treasuries. And that's kind of the trade. And that's why there's so much pressure on the yen because people are in search of both yield and safety, right? So the dollar is the safest currency out there. It's the largest economy in there. And the United States dollar will be the last to fail whenever that happens. But you're talking about something intraday you just mentioned where um, you could see the JGB yields, that 10-year yield spike up to 40 or 50 basis points intraday. And honestly, that what's happening there is it's not that the it's not that the Japanese government's having trouble keeping up with the trades. That's happening outside their 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 open market window, their federal open market window, right? So those are after hours trading in our hours, right? So and really what it is, it's 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 really it's hedge funds who are doing what's called a short swap position. They're they're going short the JGBs, they're shorting the bonds and long the yen, making the bet that eventually the the Bank of Japan is going to have to back off and allow the, that 10 year to go from 25 basis points to 50 or 75 or, or even one full point and just let, let the natural market move it to the right spot. And when that happens, well, then you're gonna have that, that, that treasury, the 10 year go up in yield and down in price and the yen go up in price versus the dollar because it's going to come back down from 140 or 138 down to 135 or below because then the pressure is going to be taken off that currency people are going to buy yen to buy the treasuries and it, that's going to be the trade and so that's what you're seeing happening off hours when you see it spike intraday in our hours that's what's going on so that makes sense do you think there's any likelihood that the Fed will ease up to essentially take off some of this pressure on what our, our allies and, and the countries that make up of the euro and Japan as well? And kind Every of, man you know, for himself, man. Every man for himself. <laughs> no, I don't think that the Fed is really considering that. Now, I think with the, you know, um, if we go back to the, the Bank of Japan, I we, you've heard me say this before, I think, is I think they're just playing a, a game of chicken with the Fed and thinking, well, look, you know, um, they're, they're 
going to they're going to have to stop raising rates here at some point in the near future because the data that's coming out is showing that we're that we're either in or heading into a recession and we don't have to go through all that data it's all over the place but um but knowing that we're that at some point here in the near future we're going to have to pull back and if you just look at one of the things that it's easy to look at is the 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 euro dollar futures and so if you look at euro dollar futures those are just deposits of their 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 us deposits in in foreign countries by foreign parties right and they're they're keyed off of the the fed interest rate so one of the things that that that'll show is that when that when that turns and those yields start coming back down it shows that the expectation is for the Fed to stop raising rates. And right now it's showing that somewhere between December and March, that's when we roll back over. Okay, so Japan is thinking we've got to, if we can just hold out through the end of this year, then we'll have, we'll have won the battle and pressure will come off the end, pressure will come off of our treasuries and because the U.S., treasury rate will come back down and that 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 push for yield will ease a little bit so that's kind of that's kind of what they're thinking over there i think so um but that kind of answered your your, your question a little bit when do i think the fed's going to blink well we're <laughs> we're in a we're in an election year you know and it's midterms in november and i think that the fed's going to want to declare that they've beat inflation at some point in the near future, and that will allow them to pause. They're not going to immediately reverse, I don't think, you know, and that would that would be shocking to me. But um, I think well, they'll 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 raise again here, seventy five basis points. Some people are saying a full point. Um, I don't think that they'll do a full percent unless we get some really bad data here in the next uh, in the in the next short while. Uh, I think that they'll still stick with that seventy five basis points. Um, and if they do want to raise it another a full percent, they better start talking about it because the, that that would shock the market. You've seen what happened in the market it immediately sold off, thinking that oh god, it's going to be a whole percent. And then some of the governors came out and, and kind of talked that down. So hopefully, hopefully they don't do that. But um, that's that, I think that's their goal is just to raise rates as quickly as they can ahead of this. And knowing that they don't, they have a short period of time here because they're getting data in arrears. They they realize that it's old data. They know that they're 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 being reactionary, so that gives them a little bit of leeway. They know that too, and so they can raise rates really quickly and then pause. They say, "Okay, we've done it. We've 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 tackled inflation. All's good," and then come take their their foot off the brake a little bit. So um, when does that happen? I mean, Luke Roman thinks it's going to happen next month, and Luke is a super smart guy. I, you know, um, he is he has been very like I, I've never heard uh, a better um, a better talk than he gave at a Mark Moss event in Dallas a, a, a couple months ago. He's a smart guy. So. Um, I happen to think that they'll, they, they'll pause somewhere between August and, and October. I don't know when. And anybody who says they do, I mean, Luke's not saying he knows. He's just, he's, he's thinking it, but, you know, <laughs> these guys, they have their agenda, so...
Hey, James, the last thing I want to ask before we wrap up here, we're coming up on an hour. Uh, when you wake up in the morning, what do you look at to kind of get your, your gauge on the market? I mean, I'm guessing you're, you know, as a Bitcoiner, you're rolling over. It goes over straight to trends. your profile, and I check every single thing you quote that you tweeted overnight because you guys stay up late, your kids. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. No, you know, um, I make my rounds. I, I, I want to see, uh, being on the West Coast here, um, I don't wake up at four o'clock in the morning to, to make sure that I'm, I'm ready for the market. I'm not actively trading right now. So uh, I can wake up and have the luxury of, of most of the information having already come out and being synthesized. So uh, I, I, I will make my rounds between Larry Lepard and Luke Roman and, uh, and Lynn Al, uh, Alden and, um, you know, and just start reading through what what is going on of course zero hedge has every single headline that's come out um i try to stay away from mainstream media as much as i can but what i do do is um i will look through the the charts that that are coming out every single day of certain things like the euro dollar spread like where are these rates where's the yen right now and this stuff changes from day to day because um, you know, one day we might have a CPI print, dig into that, or a PPI print, or one day we might have unemployment numbers. And so uh, it's, it's kind of the flavor of the day sometimes, but I will absolutely look at, uh, at those charts. And the first thing that's easy to do is just pull up the Bitcoin chart to see, and it's not, hey, how much money have, have we made or lost? It's more of what, what may have happened overnight that caused this thing to move quite a bit and then dig in from that perspective as well. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, no, totally. I like the Twitter that, yeah. answer. You know, I, I like to use my Twitter as a quasi Bloomberg terminal as well to get information. Yeah. So you just got to like yeah. clean your feed up a little, yeah, exactly. a little bit. Of, so, one, you got to follow a couple I, I, funny people, but mostly, mostly yeah. great information. <laughs> yeah. You need, you need to have some of the, uh, some of the, the shit posters in there. It's yeah. kind of funny. So uh, it, it you know, um, and I'm laughing about it, but it this has been a pretty stressful time for a lot of people. This has been super stressful. And even those people who are not in uh, some of those, the protocols you're talking about and some, some people who didn't, who didn't get wiped out, that's been awful for a ton of people who, who, who got taken for their money, uh, their savings. But this is super stressful right now, Will. And this is about as stressful as I've seen it for for money managers, for portfolio managers in my in my 28 years. Like this is this is rough. And there's a really difficult environment to figure out where to put money and actually uh, and actually get returns um, and get the right risk reward for it. So uh, the 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 levity is actually pretty welcome, and you know. I can see it in the Twitter space. There's a there's people are are getting very short with each other. They're they're super quick to lash out, uh, accuse each other of certain things. And I mean, I've I mean I've seen fistfights break out over on trading desks. You know, this is not new. This is the it, it's a different medium to to voice your your frustration and anger, but it's it's the same thing. And if you can keep your cool in this environment you'll make it all the way through. And that's the hard thing to do is keeping your cool, um, managing your emotions. Even though you may or may not have lost a lot of money at this time, 
We know it's not forever. Keep your cool. Stay, you know, just keep focused. Know what your your what you believe in and where your conviction is, and keep with that. So, yeah. James, that was a. I was going to ask you for final words, but that was better than anything that I think I could have okay. asked you. So that was great. Where can we send people to to find you? Uh, your Twitter and anything else that you want to link. I think you have a newsletter as well, right? I do. Yeah. So uh, yeah, my Twitter is just James Lavish. Um, and, uh, and I have a newsletter that's called the informationist. Um, and that is, uh, that comes out every Sunday. And I just take one of these complicated subjects and, and boil it down for everyday, uh, everyday language, super easy, simple, a few minute read. I mean, I've done things on the foreign exchange uh, repos, uh, credit default swaps, whatever it is, just one one topic, kind of where it is today and why why it matters, and you know, and it, it's really easy, uh, and that you can find in my in my bio. And then the other thing is, uh, I've been I've been helping out this this um, this educational platform. Will it's called the Looking Glass uh, educational platform, and that's also in my in my Twitter bio. And for anybody who wants to learn more about Bitcoin and really about money. And understanding the system and how it works, the kind of the history of it, again, super easy. It's like you, you sign up and it's all free and you just sign up and you can go through these modules, kind of like a course. It's really awesome. And it's great for, for young people. It's great for people who are, um, who are not in the industry, who are not in the financial industry, doctors or, uh, or attorneys or, or, or you know, firefighters or whoever it may be that is interested in really understanding the system. It's a great way to do it. You do it in your own pace. And then there are articles that will link to other, other things. And you go down the rabbit hole. It's called the looking glass. So, and that's it. But, awesome. Yeah, everyone, be sure to check those things out. I'm definitely going to subscribe to your newsletter after we hop off of here. But uh, James, this has been a, a blast. I learned a lot. You know, very, very rarely do I go back and listen through the whole podcast again after we recorded. But this will be one of the ones that I'll have to go back and re-listen to. So we appreciate your time. And hopefully we get back, get you back on in maybe the back half of the year. Yeah, awesome. I appreciate it too, Will. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and uh, and looking forward to next time we can get together for as soon as you turn 21, a beer. Yeah. <laughs> so close, but so far away. All right, take care, James. <laughs> All right.